Well, we are in a series right now digging into the book of Daniel to find out how we as believers cannot just survive. The Bible offers far more than that, but thrive in the midst of a pagan culture that's no longer friendly towards those that might still hold to the belief of a one true living God. So turn with me in your Bibles, and oh, I hope you have a Bible, to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, turn there and stand with me as I read this passage. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. What's going on here is this is a who's who of anybody that has a position of authority or power. Because this was a kingdom. The Persian Empire was enormous. So he's called for everybody in any position of power to show up for this. The officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you! It has been commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I've set up? Now, if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I've made, good. But if you do not worship, 
You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods and we will worship and nor worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... Because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Oh, listen to me. 
even though this took place hundreds of years ago in an empire that crumbled long ago. I think there's so much that we can learn from this chapter about what it means to live in a pagan culture that is pressuring us to bow down to its idols. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Number one, as Christians, I hope you realize, as Christians, you're going to face the same kind of pressures to assimilate and bow down to the gods of our culture today. And here's what I want you to understand about our chapter. Nebuchadnezzar's gold image is not any particular Babylonian god. It's not. They could have named the god. They had lots of gods. It's not a particular God, and I don't believe it's an image of himself that he wanted. Because here's what you need to understand. Nebuchadnezzar's no fool. His empire is ginormous. That includes different languages, cultures. He knew he has people all over his empire worshiping all kinds of gods. So what is he doing? What was he doing when he made this statue and set it up and made this kind of command? I'll tell you what he was doing. He was doing the same thing that our culture today tries to do to us. When it says, oh, you have the freedom to worship your own God privately. But publicly, out in the marketplace, you better be willing to bow down and be assimilated and submit to the prevailing values and political correctness of our culture. In other words, leave your God at home when it comes to moving out into the public marketplace. Don't let your ethics or morals or values or anything about your God shape you in a way that would actually cause you to live differently than the rest of us are living. In other words, he's saying, sure, hold on to your God. But be willing to lay aside your God as secondary whenever it starts to bump up against the prevailing values of our day. What he's saying is you better show me that when push comes to shove, you're willing. That your allegiance to your God will not cause you to rock the boat in any way. As we continue to do what we do, say what we say, believe what we believe, press values that we think everyone should hold. Because it's really my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I hope you realize we're living in the same kind of culture today because we're living in a very pluralistic culture, society. And this is what pluralism always seeks to do. Pluralism always tries to assimilate you into the public culture by making you privatize your personal God. Sure, here's what it sounds like. Sure, worship God at home. And even gather together with some friends on the weekend. But don't dare bring that God or your values into the marketplace and the public square. So how are we doing as Christians here in America? 
Never mind Babylon or Persia. How are we doing as Christians here in America? Are we standing? And, and I hope you know this is not a message to get us all. If you've been listening for a while, for a few years now, I've been pushing, because I think it's biblical, let's not be obnoxious. Let's not be screaming. Let's not be haters. That's one ditch to fall into. But there is another ditch of silence and compromise. When you read through the book of Daniel, even this chapter here, I think you, if you could have heard these three, I think they were calm as they said what they said to the king, and they were respectful. And they were willing to suffer whatever it cost them. That's what I'm advocating. It may cost you. We're not going to turn into haters. We're to love our enemies, but we are to continue to hold to what God teaches us is how we're to live even as the culture just begins to go further and further and further adrift from God's biblical truth and values to which he's called us. So how are we doing? Are we standing up appropriately and respectfully, willing to pay the cost like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Or are Christians in America just being assimilated and swallowed up by the culture? Well, sadly, statistics show swallowed up. Swallowed up. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. There's many, many, many examples I could give. I've just chosen three today for the sake of time. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about with how we're doing standing against and refusing to bow to the leading cultural golden gods of our day. Here's the first, number one. Sexual pleasure and expression of it that has absolutely no restraints. No restraints. It's good. It's great. Therefore, anybody can do it anytime with anyone in any way they choose. So we start off together with our culture. Yes, it is good. We're not ashamed of it. We're not embarrassed by it. God designed it. But this good God who gave us this wonderful gift of sexual pleasure, yes, he made us sexual beings, also said, oh, it's good. And here's how I want you to use it. Not because I'm such a mean dad, but I'm such a good father. This good gift is designed to be used as I've instructed you to use it for your own blessing. Otherwise, it becomes destructive to you and to others around you, but our culture is saying and just beating this drum, huh, we're sexual beings, how can we say no to ourselves? That would just mess you up, you should not say no. Oh, you're gonna be left in a, in a burning, fiery furnace of frustration if you ever try to tell yourself no. And that's a lie. Statistics show, sadly, that Christians have fallen prostrate before this golden God of sexual pleasure without restraint. A couple of sociologists came out with a massive study at Oxford University Press that they titled Premarital Sex in America. And here's what the study did. The study tracked with two groups of unmarried, college-educated males, age 18 to 23. And one group grew up in a community or home or parents with people that just said, it's great, sexual pleasure is great, go for it. I had an adult man recently tell me, here's how my dad told me about sex. 
he gave me a Playboy magazine, laid it on the kitchen table, and left for work. I was 10. So it's good. Just do it. I, even way back when I was in high school, I had friends that said, my dad talked to me about sex and said, get all you can. Take to bed as many girls as you can through high school. So there's that group. It's good. Go for it. Use it any way you want. Get all you can. Okay, there's the, that group of young men being taught this. The other group grew up in a community or in church or with families who taught them, yes, it's good, absolutely. But it's God's good gift to us. And he knows how we will best enjoy it. Otherwise, it becomes destructive. It's for marriage. It's in the context of a committed, loving, safe relationship. Otherwise, oh my goodness, this will destroy you as well as many, many others. Two groups, what'd they find? This group that was taught, go for it, 23% of them were virgins. This group that was taught, oh, it is good, but it's God's good gift. We have a God, we have his word, here's how to use this, 28% virgins. I hope you don't see that as a win. Here's what you need to understand. Whenever surveys are taken, the difference between 23% and 28% is essentially negligible. Nothing. No difference at all. Never mind what these young men might have said they believed or had been taught. They lived no different. They have bowed to the golden idol of our culture. Here's the lie. Oh, you can't say no to yourself. You're a sexual being. You'll be burning with fiery frustration. And my heart, listen, my heart goes most to you young ladies. Don't hear me saying there's not damage happening to these young men. There, are, there is. But by and large, they move on, young ladies, and they bed down with someone else. And then they tweet about it. Oh, it's so hurtful. For the sake of your, your own heart. And a, this is not a mad, mean dad that's saying to you, oh, this is so good, but I, I want to hold out. I don't want you to have this goodness. He's the best father. He's the most loving father. Here's what you need to understand. Sex is a lot like super glue. I mean, it's, it's not just a physical animal act. God designed this to be part of what creates oneness in a marriage. So here's what's so hard about this, young ladies. You give yourself to a young man sexually in the most intimate of moments, and he moves on. And I've watched, I've watched this over and over again, a young woman who hangs on to a bad boy. He's not a good guy. He's not a good guy at all. But she just can't get over him and won't let go of him. And if they talk to me multiple times in love, I'll finally say, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? I'll say, have you had sex with him? Are you sleeping with him? I've never had a different answer. Eyes go to the ground and they say yes. God designed it that way that you just don't want to let him go. And yet you need to. Don't do this, young ladies. I, but I know in our culture, it's just like, oh, after going out two or three times, like, 
you just have to do this. I won't be able to keep him if I don't do this. I won't get him. If that's what it takes to get him, you don't want him. You want a man who's made a commitment. And you say, where are they? I don't know. (laughs) But you know what? You and your bridegroom Jesus till he returns is better than these loser guys that are fulfilling their own sexual pleasure as conquest at your expense. Say no. Fall in love with Jesus. Oh, it's just tragic. It breaks my heart. And young men... I'm not letting you off the hook. If you're here and you say you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Don't say you can't. It's that you won't honor her body and protect her and cherish her and wait until you're willing to make a commitment to be her husband that you want her to take off her clothes for you. If you're here and you're unmarried and you say you know Jesus and you are living with someone right now, you are sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you have bowed down to the golden idol of our culture, sexual pleasure without any restraints And you need to repent. Today. Repent. Repent. Hebrews 13, verse 4. says, the marriage bed is undefiled. Sex is not bad and we're not ashamed of it. Unless you're new to this church, then you... Surely you know, this pastor likes sex. I'm the one that has offended a lot of people. We're not against sex. We're not embarrassed by sex. We think it's great. And it was meant for marriage. 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 Hebrews 13, 4 says, the marriage bed is undefiled. There's nothing bad there. This is good. But fornicators, that's unmarried people having sex. And adulterers, that's married people having sex that's with someone that's not their spouse, that's rampant also. God will judge. Number two, let me give you another one of our cultural golden gods today. Business for profit that is ruthless and has no concern for any ethics or marriage and family life at all. Now, again, we just finished a series, Redeeming Work. Is work good? Do I want you to get in there in the marketplace and be one of the best at whatever you do? But here's what you better understand. If you're here and you're a Christian and you have decided, oh, I have to be just as ruthless as anybody else. I have to be barely legal or I won't make it. I won't make it, Pastor Brad. If you've made that decision And as far as your ethics and how you treat people and checks in the mail when it isn't in the mail and expense forms are filled out less than honest, you have bowed to the cultural golden idol of business for profit that is ruthless and without any ethics. You say, but I won't advance. So you don't advance. Don't hear me saying these things won't cost you, young ladies, but what if I never get married? What if you never get married? It'd be better than just, you may not advance. 
I mean, there's a proverb that says, he who works with a diligent hand will not... We'll stand before kings and not in obscurity. That's a general principle. When you're a hard worker and you're good at what you do, even when you're a Christian, oftentimes, you'll advance. But as you advance, you may bump right up against a policy or something that is just what everyone does that you as a believer should say, I I can't do that. I can't do that. I have a God who wouldn't let me do that. And if it costs me, it costs me. Just last week, I spoke with a young man. Here's what this looks like. This is what I'm talking about. A young man in our church family, and I have permission to tell this. Oh, my goodness, gifted. One of those guys that he walks into a room and just commands it. I mean, you just think, oh, whatever he says, do, do it. He can sell you anything. And so he's being groomed for this fast-track path in the financial industry. And he's got it. He has the it factor. But here's what he was told. He's married and has two little girls. He was told, quote, the first two to three years, it's hell. You're going to work day and night, 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 day and night. You're like, okay, okay, I'll put in my time and then. But he wisely reached out to a man in the company who's been doing it a long time that is making a million dollars a year and has six children. And he looked at the guy and he said, what's your family life like? And the guy answered, quote, non-existent. Why? I'll tell you why. Well, and the young man walked away. Walked away. You say, oh, but he could have made a lot of money for the glory of God and used it for missions. And at what cost? Because here's the lie of idolatry. Here's what it looks like and here's what it sounds like. You'll only need to do this for a little while. And a little while turns into a little longer. And a little longer turns into the new normal. Because it never lets up. You just think, I can't let up. People will get ahead of me. I have, ha, ha. Business. He said... When that man answered that question that way for me, I asked myself, do I want to sacrifice my family at the altar of success? And I decided no. So he's looking for a job. God will honor that. God will honor that. Number three, and now I'm going to poke the bear. Vicki heard me practicing in the bedroom, and when she heard this, she's like, oh, honey, 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 please be careful. (laughs) So you can thank God for her, but I'm not going to be careful. (laughs) She tries. Oh, I'm going to poke the bear. This is, I do believe, the most gilded, shiny, golden idol in our culture today. The world of sports that our kids have been thrown into that is no longer about fun, but is a multi-billion, I just used to be, billion dollar industry. Multi-billion dollar industry. Time Magazine, August 2017. This is just not Christians complaining about this. This is not Christianity today. Time Magazine. Did an article in August 2017. They said, kids 
select, use the word whatever you want. We're really good. So we have to drive all over God's green earth. Kids sports is now a $15.3 billion industry that has doubled in the last 10 years. And I'd like to tell you it doubled because of all the unbelievers headed down that path. But folks, Christian moms and dads are right in the thick of it. Right in the thick of it, along with all the unbelievers. And here's what the article said that I couldn't help but being struck by it. It it broke it down and said, here's what the average family spends depending on what your sport is. Here's what it costs for hockey in a year, basketball in a year, baseball in a year, lacrosse, you, you name it. And it said the average American family now spends about 10% of their annual income on kids' sports. Now stay with me. Does that percentage ring any bells from our money-giving series? That is the amount that God says we should give back to God to demonstrate to him that we know it all came from him and we depend on him and we trust him that he'll help us go further with the 90 than we could with the 100. And yet, I hear from so many Christian families, especially with kids, oh, there's no way we can give 10%. Oh, we could never do that. And yet they do tithe. They just tithe to the golden idol of kids' sports. Oh, it's quiet now. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm. And this sports god, you guys, has families driving all over God's green earth. I speak about once a month in other cities. Guess who's in the hotel with me now? It's packed with a girls' lacrosse team, it's very noisy. They're making a mess at breakfast. It's packed with a boys' wrestling. It's packed with all these kids and their parents who are part of this. And so families are going all over the place, many times spending money they do not have and time that would be better spent some other way. And what it used to be, I mean, please, hope you know, I'm not the guy that doesn't like sports. God forbid. I, I wrestled. I was on the tennis team. I was on the football team. I was on the track team. Guess where? At school. And I practiced, and I stayed, and I rode the late bus home. And it didn't impact my mom and dad, or their checkbook, or their schedule, or our home at all. Families are paying for hotels, gas, all your meals out, league fees, uniforms, equipment. And now let me just really poke it. Your son or daughter ain't going pro. (laughs) It ain't happening. They're not going pro, but let me really just poke the other one. Oh, but they might get a scholarship that would pay for college. You would be better off taking all the money you spent from age 6 to 18. Add it up on hotels, gas, meals, league fees, equipment, etc. And if you'd saved it, I think you'd have more money for college. And they only give out so many scholarships, sports scholarships, and it's not always a full scholarship. This is one big lie. But here's the problem. So I know some of you are way into it. I don't know that I could convince you to back out. 
My hope, as I told my sweet baby love, God, I gotta say something, honey, I'm a pastor, because I wanna help other young couples not do this. Because here's what really bothers me. We have young couples in our church, and here's, here's what it looks like. In their eyes and in their voice, I see it and hear it, and they'll say, but Pastor Brad, what if one of my little kids is gifted in a sport? Oh, what if? What if? I'm going to answer that question with a question and be like Jesus. He liked doing that. What if? So your daughter's gifted and you don't choose to go down that path. Now, don't, don't think this is sour grapes. I just didn't have good kids. They came to us and they said, Lauren's gifted. She needs special outfits for gymnastics and we need to travel. And we said, uh, not going to happen. No. No. Poor thing. She's under a bridge today. <laughs> and every time I see her at the holidays, she says, how could you have done this to me, Dad? I've, she's a nurse in St. Louis with a really cool loft apartment and a husband and a precious dog named Tucker. It has not impacted her at all. What if your daughter just plays in recreational leagues or at school? Will it keep her from loving Jesus for a lifetime? I don't think so. Will it keep her from finding a good husband? Will it keep her from getting a good job? You've bought into the lie. Here's what it sounds like. You're a bad parent if you don't. You haven't given your child every advantage and every leg up to be a success. What kind of parent would see talent and not see that it was developed to its fullest? A parent who loves God and recognizes, get this, here's what I want to say. Everything that needs to be experienced and learned for life cannot be learned in a gym or on the field with your parents sitting in the bleachers, sometimes in two different bleachers because you've gone different directions with different kids. Some things are best learned in a home with a solid marriage that isn't so stressed out and frazzled over money and schedule because of sports. Mic drop. Okay? It's like, oh... Come on. Why look? We look just like the rest of the culture. And if it was just, it's not even good for the kids. I've read articles that the kids get sick of sports so much sooner because it's so intense so early. It's not about fun. It's not about teamwork. It's not about some healthy competition. It is just like, oh, we're going to have to all these practices and all these tournaments to all these cities. And you can't go on spring break because we're having practice twice a day during spring break. There's no going to New York City with a youth group to work in a mission because you have practice. I'll stop. Oh, my goodness. Let's repent. Listen to me. Two things that I believe will happen almost immediately when you stop bowing down to the kids' sports god. Your checkbook will thank you. And your calendar will will breathe a sigh of relief with margin for some things that matter more, like just unhurried time as a family and like family together instead of going in two different directions with all these tournaments and practices. Number two, if you want to keep trusting God, you'll need a theology that is bigger than your best life now. 
These three young men put on display a theology that is much bigger than your best life now. Their theology of God is captured in verses 17 and 18, and you've got to have both because both of them are taught in the Bible. But we've got a lot of Christians that have a theology they found on TV or the best-selling books with hair swept back and the wife with long lashes and an air-conditioned doghouse that's only got verse 17. Listen, as we, you gotta have both. Listen to it again. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Three words in verse 18 that actually shows what it really looks like to trust God. Say those three words with me. But if not. But if not, we will not serve your God. What are they doing? They're acknowledging that God is sovereign. And he could, for his own sovereign purposes, perhaps decide to allow them to suffer even unto death, and he's still God, and he's still good. See, there's a theology out there that would have rushed to their side and said, you can't talk that way, guys. No, 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 that's not faith, that's doubt. You have to keep saying, I know he will, I know he will, I know he will, I'm believing, I'm believing, I'm believing. And if you say it long enough and loud enough and hard enough, he has to. We put God in a faith headlock. Look at me, I keep saying it with no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Folks, please have robust faith. And then please submit to the sovereignty of God like Jesus who cried out, Father, if there's any other way, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Key word that's very similar to but if not, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Here's the mistake that this theology has made. It's just what people want to hear. You can have a huge church and sell a lot of books with this. The Bible doesn't show believers, if you have enough faith, you always will be delivered and you'll never suffer. History doesn't show godly men and women. Godly men and women who were filled with faith found themselves in circumstances where God sovereignly allowed them to suffer, yes, even unto death. Turn to Hebrews 11, let me show you what I'm talking about. That's that chapter that many Christians call the great hall of faith. We're gonna see people that had faith and did amazing things, and yes, for dozens of verses, you just see this woman by faith did this, this man by faith did this, by faith they stopped the mouths of lions, by faith they were raised from the dead, by faith, by faith, by faith. A lot of Christians don't keep reading far enough. Look at verse 36. Hebrews 11, verse 36. Still others, others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, because they did not have enough faith. Is that what your Bible says? Folks, verse 38 is telling us these men and women had no less faith than the previous ones. This verse is saying, look at verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They had 
faith and God sovereignly let them be tortured and suffer trials and be sawn in two. They went to their death glorifying God. The whole chapter is a chapter of men and women of faith, but a sovereign God decides which way would most glorify him, and we trust him. Now, I know this is a hard theology. I don't, I don't have a book coming out on this because nobody wants it. And it's amazing our church is this big. This is a hard theology, a theology of suffering, but it's a biblical theology. So let me say, you gotta get my last point. To get your arms around this, you must understand, number three, to embrace a theology of suffering, you have to know the one who already suffered most for you. We have a suffering savior And the word Christian means little Christ. He suffered. We're going to suffer. You see, in the Old Testament, there there are places where angels like Gabriel and Michael show up occasionally to help or to speak a word from the Lord. And then there's some places where the Old Testament will talk about the angel of the Lord. Who's that? That's what we got going on in this chapter. It's the angel of the Lord. Of the Lord. You see it in verse 25. Look at it. Nebuchadnezzar says, Look, look, I see four men, and the fourth is like the Son of God. Theologians call it a Christophany. It's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament before he took on flesh and came into our world. If you're here and you're a Christian, see, Jesus himself was with them in the fire, in the furnace. If you're a Christian, you don't go into the furnace of your trials with something to help you. You go into the furnace of your trials with someone, and he has a name. Who is it? Who said he would never leave you? Or forsake you. You say, how do I know he's with me in the furnace of my trials right now with my daughter? Or with my job? Or with cancer? Or with my rebellious child? Or with, you fill in the blank. How do I know, Pastor Brad, he's with me now in the furnace of my trials? You know it because he already experienced the ultimate furnace of God's fiery wrath against your sin for you. Jesus has already done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Don't doubt that he loves you. Don't doubt that he's with you. Jonathan Edwards was the Princeton theologian and philosopher who's best known for a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he preached hundreds of other sermons, including one about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to the cross. And listen to what he says. I'm gonna paraphrase. He titled this Christ Agony. Why? Because Christ was in such agony in prayer that the scriptures say he sweat drops of blood. Edward says this, Jesus had there in the garden. Why is he wrestling like this? Why is he sweating? Why is he in agony? Jesus had there in the garden a near view of the furnace of God's 
divine wrath into which he was about to be cast. A furnace vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. In the garden, Jesus was brought to the place where he viewed the mouth of God's raging furnace of wrath against sin. He could see it. He saw the glowings of its heat that he might know what he was about to suffer. That terrible sight overwhelmed him. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It wasn't the beating, the plucking of his beard, the spit in his face that he was overwhelmed by. It was the thought of the raging, fiery furnace of God's wrath against sin that was about to be poured out on him instead of us. And we know he was overwhelmed on a human level because he cried out three times, oh, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What was the cup that he was talking about? The cup of God's wrath. If you read Revelation, it talks again. It comes back to cup. The cup of God's wrath that would be poured out onto the nations, but not poured out on any believer who has put their trust in Jesus because he, in those six hours that he hung on the cross, he became sin for us. He was scorched completely by the fiery wrath of God against sin. And there was no angel to relieve him. There was no one to aid him in his burden. There was no hand of God to deliver him because the hand of God was actually against him in that moment. He went through the fires of hell for us on the cross so that we would never have to experience it for ourselves. No other religion talks like this. That's why I just chafe when the media acts like, there's Judaism, there's Islam, there's Christianity, whatever, it's all a God. Oh! No other religion has a God who sends his son into the furnace of wrath to pay the price for us who were enemies. Every other religion is basically a list of what you need to do to appease God and to earn his favor. Only Christianity is the religion that proclaims the good news that what is required by a holy God has been met once and for all by the Son of God for you Put your trust in him as your savior. Oh, such good news. And don't make the mistake of thinking because you're here today and you've heard this, that he's your God. I'm glad you're here. But I want you to see as we close a contrast between how Shadrach and Meshach talk about God and how Nebuchadnezzar talks about him. Look at verse 17, because there's a pronoun that makes all the difference in your life. Look at verse 17. There's a pronoun that makes all the difference in your life. What did they say? What, what is it? It's our God. Our God whom we serve. He's our God. Verse 29. 
You might, you might think, oh, Nebuchadnezzar's saying some good things. They're actually not good things. Cut people apart, pull their house down, burn them. He's still a maniac. Notice how he describes God. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed. He's still somebody else's God. Nebuchadnezzar's not a convert. He's not a believer. He has certainly not bowed the knee. We're going to see it in later chapters. He gets over this great moment. What about you today? Are you trusting in some kind of religion that's told you what to do that keeps you in the driver's seat of your life? You may be here and you say, I'm not hostile towards God and Christianity. I'm happy for people that find that helpful. Listen to me, that's not the same thing as submitting your life to this God and saying, he's my God. You're still in charge of your life and still chasing after the gods of this culture. Come to Christ, who was scorched in the furnace of God's wrath for you. The Bible says, oh, One day, sooner than you think, every knee will bow. Every tongue in this room will confess, Jesus is, say it. But it will be too late if you didn't confess it in this life. Come to Christ today to find forgiveness and freedom and purpose and joy. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples, but most of all, thank you for a savior who stepped into the furnace of your holy, righteous, just wrath against sin for us while we were yet sinners, enemies, strangers. He laid down his life. Oh We give you thanks. And we know we won't do it perfectly, but God, may we as a church family, wherever our culture is headed next, may we not be found bowing in front of the same gilded golden idols that the rest of our culture is chasing after and bowing to. May we be respectful and kind and loving But may we be courageous enough to say at points in the business world, at points with our sexuality or sports or any other area, oh, we will not serve your gods, America, nor will we bow to the golden idol.